Good morning again, everyone. So last week, as we did the first part of that same psalm, as we talked about how the heavens declare the glory of God and how unfortunately throughout the history of mankind and even in Israel's own history and sad to say in our own, uh, it's not been an unusual state of affairs to see mankind seeing the wonder and the beauty of creation and misreading the sign and forgetting that it was God that the glory of creation was pointing to. That it was God who, as creator of all things, should receive the glory for all the things that have been made. And so it shouldn't surprise us that as this psalm continues, this psalm, which was really an an antidote to this unfortunate tendency that was had in their time and in ours as well, that as this psalm continues, it doesn't just stop with what the heavens say about God. Those first six verses, they have a lot to say about the majesty of creation and what we see up in the stars and the sky and how amazing they are and how they bear witness to God. But it's not the only witness that's listed in this psalm. It's not the only witness that the psalmist wants to remind us of. Because as I said last week, that witness alone probably isn't enough. That witness does show us that there is something greater. And it leads us to humility. But there's a twin witness to creation in this psalm. This witness of Scripture. This witness of the Word of God. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, well, we're talking about things that point us to God. Signposts that that direct us towards the fact that there, there is a God and that He's alive and He's active and that He's working. And you might think, okay, well, talking about the Bible, well... Yeah, that one's you know kind of obvious. Um, sometimes there's statements that are just so obvious, you know, like this one: "Car park closed due to flooding." Says the sign that's under about four feet of water. <laughs> you know, sometimes you're like, like, why, why even talk about this? <laughs> you know, why isn't this just so obvious that it doesn't need to be mentioned? That it doesn't need to be brought up? Well, unfortunately. Even though Scripture as a witness to God and Scripture as a signpost pointing to God is probably the most obvious thing we could talk about, sometimes it's the most obvious thing that's the most neglected and the most overlooked. I love how it's stated by uh, Arthur Conan Doyle um, through, through the mouth of Sherlock Holmes and the Hound of the Baskervilles when Holmes says, The world is full of obvious things which nobody by any chance ever observes. The world is full of obvious things. And sometimes, because it's so obvious, we don't really give it the recognition that it needs. We don't actually pay enough attention to let it have its effect on us. Just because it seems obvious doesn't mean that we really understand it or that we really put it into practice. But really, when we really observe Scripture. When we take this word that's been passed down to us, these ancient words, as the song we just sang, that these ancient words long preserved for us, when we really look at them, I think some amazing things can happen. But of course, the first question comes up when we look at Scripture, well, can Scripture be trusted? Now, some, admittedly, have glanced at Scripture with its diversity of authors and different perspectives, and painted it with a broad brush of cynicism. 
calling it a book full of contradiction and confusion. But I think you'll find that those who have actually looked carefully at its words have found a book with astounding unity. A story of God with such richness and complexity that we will probably never be able to fully mine its depth. When thinking about this, I couldn't help but be reminded of a story that I've heard John Trevondi tell a couple of times. One of the, the first things that really got his attention to say, maybe I really need to take a look at this God, take a look at this Jesus. When he was at a seminar and one of the presenters there just made a reference to the hundreds of prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus. Now, that's something that should get us to pay attention. And we're so used to it that, you know, those of us who have been in church for a while, we think, okay, yes, Old Testament prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. Yeah, that's, that's not some great revelation to us. We, we almost think that's kind of normal. Heard it said once that there was some, uh, some math that I don't even begin to understand, so don't ask me to explain it later. But just calculating some of the odds of fulfilling just some of these hundreds of prophecies, there was a mathematician that took just 48 of the, the major prophecies, like really, really big ones, really big, important ones, and calculated with his, his students there that in order for all of those prophecies to be fulfilled by an individual... I'm not going to give you some massive number that doesn't mean anything to you, but it would be about the same as the odds of taking the entire state of Texas, pretty decent-sized piece of land there, taking the entire state of Texas, covering it two feet deep in silver dollars, a two-foot-deep layer of silver dollars, and then dropping someone down just in a random location in the midst of them, and them just reaching down and picking out the one that you had marked. And that's just for some of the prophecies. There's a story in Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, and I'm sure a lot of you are at least familiar with it, if, if you haven't actually read it yourself, of a man who didn't really know about this too much. He was a man who had grown up in a Jewish home, but had kind of left the faith um, early on. And, and he was looking for truth somewhere, but he had a very rough life, tossed this way and, and that. And, and one day when he had really almost given up on God, you might say, he was walking along and there was a group of Christians, of, of, of street preachers, I guess you would call them, out trying to evangelize. And, and he got into a somewhat sarcastic conversation with them, not really paying much heed to, to what they said. And when one, when the, the, the leader there, the preacher among them had mentioned Jesus to him. And then at the mention of Jesus, he says, oh, Jesus, you know, don't bother me with that. I'm Jewish. And he says, well, I mean, don't you know about the, the, the prophecies of the Messiah? And he said, well, no. <laughs> he wasn't even really familiar what, with what he was talking about. And then this preacher started quoting some scripture to him. And at first he didn't want to pay attention until he thought, wait a minute. Those are the scriptures I heard when I was a kid. That's, that's, that's my Bible he's quoting here. And so this minister gives him a Bible, says, take a look at this. Look at the story of Jesus and, and, and even look at your own scripture. Look at the Old Testament, the things that you were raised with. I think you'll be surprised at what you find if you really look. And so he does. And he starts in Genesis And he starts reading through and noticing things that he had never really noticed before. 
Things like, I won't give you the whole list, but things like, you know, a, a prophet greater than Moses that would come. It's like, well, greater than Moses. Could, could that be saying something about Jesus? And, and as he went through the Old Testament, he saw over and over and over again things that he hadn't really thought of before because this idea of a Messiah and of a prophecy, especially anything that might point towards Jesus, was just never mentioned in his home. And when he eventually made his way into the New Testament, he started seeing things from the scriptures that he knew. He started seeing things from the Old Testament being fulfilled in Christ. And it blew his mind. Some years later, he met another Jewish woman who was a believer in Christ. And they were married and they, it was where they began, you know, they were looking for a church and they happened to walk in to the same church of that same preacher that had been out on the street and had given him the Bible that day, said his jaw just dropped, that he would see him, of all people, this agitator, <laughs> walking into the doors of his church. When we really look into Scripture, we can be amazed by it. Also, in this book, there's a, one of the conversations that Lee Strobel has as he's searching, is with a man by the name of Bruce Metzger that might be familiar to some of you. He was really one of the great... New Testament textual scholars in the 20th century. And admittedly, there are some who looked at him with a little bit of distrust because of the work that he did with different manuscripts and trying to find the most reliable sources and dealing with textual variations between manuscripts. And there are many who would say, like, oh, you're just trying to cast doubt on the text, make people not believe that it's reliable. But that's not what he would have to say about it. This man who was probably one of the leading authorities on textual criticism and finding the most authentic words of Scripture that we could have access to. After this long conversation about all of these technical things about textual criticism, the author is getting up to leave and he says, all these decades of scholarship, of study, of writing textbooks, of delving into the minutiae of the New Testament text, what has all this done to your personal faith? I asked. Oh, he said, sounding happy to discuss the topic. It has increased the basis of my personal faith to see the firmness with which these materials have come down to us. With a multiplicity of copies, some of which are very, very ancient. So, I started to say, scholarship has not diluted your faith, and he jumped in before I could finish my sentence. On the contrary, he stressed, it has built it. I've asked questions all my life. I've dug into the text. I've studied this thoroughly. And today I know with confidence that my trust in Jesus has been well placed. He paused while his eyes surveyed my face, then added for emphasis, very well placed. The people who have really seriously dug into this word and not just looked at it from a distance, have looked into it and found something that deepens their faith or maybe even pointed them to God in the first place through his son Jesus. It was a lesson that uh, was given actually at the North Hills Youth Rally about, I don't know, three or four years ago, probably, when Patrick Mead was a speaker. Many of you know Patrick Mead from his time earlier in his ministry when he was in this part of the country. And um, one of the things that is always going to stick with me is he was talking about a time in his academic life, in his college years, when I believe he said that he was trying very hard to become an atheist. <laughs> but the more that he studied, the harder it became for him. And he said one day he was reading through Scripture, reading through the Old Testament, and he said he had an experience that was like finding a Buick in a pyramid. (laughs) 
It was like going through this ancient site and finding something from your modern day world just sitting there staring at you, knowing that something must be strange. Because he was reading about the ceremonial cleanliness and uncleanliness laws. He was reading about the, these directions that were given to Israel out in the wilderness of how they should conduct themselves. And because of his academic training and his medical training, he was seeing things that were like, wait a minute. These instructions that God was giving to Israel, these are in line with an understanding of like microbes and and epidemiology that like we wouldn't have, mankind wouldn't have an understanding of this till like at least the 19th century. But there it was, things that were perfectly in line, these laws that were protecting Israel based on knowledge that he had, that Patrick had, but he knew had only come about in the last one to two hundred years. And he said it was like finding a Buick in a pyramid. You know something is going on here. Something strange is happening. When we really look into Scripture, when we really let it be what it is, when we let the Bible be the Bible and let it speak for itself, I think we'll find that there's something going on there that warrants our attention. Now, many of those who have the greatest difficulty accepting Scripture and understanding Scripture are so often those who have ascribed to the Bible claims which it never made about itself due to a shallow reading and a shallow understanding. Maybe reading the whole thing like a legal document or simply some set of instructions that have to be followed. Ignoring the great variety of literary forms and methods of expression. Not letting the text be the text. And I'm not going to dig too deeply into all of those misunderstandings. But I did hear recently a, a minister that had an atheist say to him recently, you're not reading the Bible literally enough. <laughs> he said, oh, really? Because, see, the claims that the atheist wanted to make about Scripture to tear it down required a very narrow and very literal view of certain things. The minister said, well, when I let the Bible be the Bible and I let it be what it claims to be, I don't see the problem that you're seeing. Too many Christians, unfortunately, I think in the name of defending the faith, have strapped themselves onto some caricature of the Bible that's been established by some of critics, the the, the laziest and harshest of Scripture's critics. And saying like, oh, if people say you can't trust the Bible because of this, well, I'm going to stand for that and I'm going to fight and I'm going to yell till I'm blue in the face. Well, you know, the Bible's been around for a while. I think it can take care of itself. If we let the Bible be the Bible and don't don't try and defend attacks that come on someone else's terms, I think we'll find a little more power in Scripture itself. But you see, when you make those claims based on those caricatures, when, when the atheist comes at Scripture with that shallow reading and trying to fit it into a narrow interpretation, it can make it much easier to just dismiss. It reminds me of the line someone says to an atheist, you know, tell me about the God you don't believe in, because I'm pretty sure I don't believe in him either. It can be very easy to not believe in something that's a caricature, not believe in something that isn't even a true representation of what it is. A lot of people I've heard give, have given me descriptions of a God that they just can't put their faith in, and I hear them and said, well, of course you can't. Of course you can't put faith in that God, because that's not God. That's a twisted and a perverted version of God that you've built in your own mind. And that's never going to draw you to faith. God himself 
The real thing, that can draw you to faith. Scripture, letting it be what it really is, letting it speak for itself, understanding it on its own terms. Well, that's something I think we can get behind. The Scripture that so many would just dismiss, I don't think it's the same Bible that I've been reading. Not the same Bible that I've been studying. Not the same Bible that has revealed the story of God to me. Yes, there are difficult things in Scripture. Yes, there are things that require real study in order to not take your own assumptions and lay them on the text. There's some real work involved in letting the Bible be the Bible. And even when we do dig in, there's probably going to be some questions that will simply remain unanswered. Guess what? God is bigger than us. And His ways are higher than our ways. And His wisdom, His folly is greater than our wisdom. (laughs) Scripture says that. But it's worth the effort. It's worth the effort of digging into Scripture to mine it for what we can from the story of God because we recognize the divine source that it has. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, love what Paul says here. says, we... We also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. When we accept the words not just as human wisdom, not just as human words, but as the word of God, we recognize that it's worth the effort. Because see, hearts are changed when the word of the Lord is given to them. So many times, especially in the Old Testament, we see over and over again, and we talked about this some a few weeks ago in the Hosea class downstairs, about what happens when the word of the Lord comes to someone and how that changes everything. That's, that is the watershed moment in the story. The word of the Lord comes and everything is different. And it reminds me of Isaiah fifty-five eleven. When God says through the prophet Isaiah, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I think an older translation that I had heard much of my life, instead of not return empty, the word of the Lord will not return void. Something will happen. This probably won't make sense to most of you, but there's a, in like computer programming, there's this thing about, you know, returning null. That's like the worst thing you want to happen. For, for you to like write a program, you try running it, you try testing this code, and you don't get the result you want. You don't get some error. You just get nothing. <laughs> it just returns null. You're like, you don't even know what happened. You, maybe it's still running. Maybe it's not finished yet. You don't even know what's going on. That's like the worst possible thing when you're trying to fix the problem, if it returns null. said. So, The word of God, it doesn't return null. (laughs) Something is going to happen when the word of the Lord is communicated on its terms. Many times it brings faith. Sometimes, yes, it brings rejection, but it's not going to be empty. The word of the Lord has power and it demands a response and it demands action. So sometimes we need to let its power go to work. Because we can underestimate the power of Scripture, Sometimes, you know, we think it's our technique or our persuasiveness or our eloquence that's going to do some good in communicating the Word of God. No, it's not. Paul certainly didn't think so. Over in 1 Corinthians 
chapter 2, when he says, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you. I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. He goes on and talk about how God's wisdom is revealed in the Spirit. It wasn't about Paul. He knew that. It's not about us and how we communicate. The word of the Lord will not return empty. It will not return void. It won't return null. Something will happen when we let the word be the word. Even on the road to Emmaus, in a passage just a little bit before what uh, Jim read for us earlier, as these two disciples were going along, not understanding what had happened, all they knew is that Jesus had been crucified and put in a tomb. This man who they thought was the Messiah was gone. They saw him die, and they saw him be put in a tomb, but now people were saying, oh, he's alive again, we've seen him. They didn't know what was going on, and they were excitedly talking about what is happening. That is kind of amazing to me that they were leaving Jerusalem. I don't want to stick around, personally. But they were on the road to Emmaus, and, and Jesus is walking along there with them, and they don't even recognize him. For whatever reason, they weren't allowed to understand who he was, to see who he was at the time. And they say, you know, don't, don't you know? You know that? Jesus asked them what they're talking about. and said, don't you know what's been going on? And so they give them sort of the Cliff Notes version of their understanding of what has happened on those last few days in Jerusalem. And Jesus says to them, oh, look, it's me. Here I am. See? In the flesh. No, that's not what he says. This is what he does. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And it's not until a little while later that he allows their eyes to be opened to recognize that it's Christ in the flesh. I mean, he was right there. Okay, if I were Jesus, once again, good thing I'm not. But if I were Jesus, I would have just said, I would have like set off some fireworks or something and say, hey, it's me. I'll tell you what's been going on. I'm right here in the flesh. I'm back. Just like I said I would be. But that's not what he does. Jesus himself, when witnessing about himself, doesn't even rely on his own flesh first. He goes to Scripture. He goes to the Word of God. And he says, let me explain to you how all these Scriptures are trustworthy, how they point to what has been happening, how they explain all of this to you. And then he says, and here I am. And then later in the passage that Jim read for us, I won't read it again for you, but as he's explaining to them, as they're just in awe and wonder and don't even know what to believe because they're in such shock and they're feeling such amazement but such joy, and what does he do? He goes to the scriptures. He explains from the words that they recognize as being God's words that this is what was meant to be. It's important to do this. It's important to let the Bible be the Bible. And it's important for us, like those things that I talked about earlier, all the, the prophecies and the, the probabilities and the Buick and a pyramid and, and all those things, there are a lot of facts about the Bible that can give us trust in it. 
And knowing about the Bible is good. But I don't want us to get too wrapped up in that because knowing the Bible is better. Just like knowing about God is good, but knowing God is better. Knowing about Jesus is good, but knowing Jesus is better. And we're going to get into that some more next week, so I don't want to belabor that point. But we do need an appreciation for what the Bible is. We need to understand how we got it, why it's trustworthy. And I'm going to put in a plug here for this Wednesday night class that we're having here over this next quarter or so, where that's some of the things that we're talking about. In fact, I was trying to be really careful this week not to step on too many things that are, that are coming up. But Ray and, and Jay and... That rhymed, but I didn't even realize it. Okay, um, they, they're going to be te- they're co-teaching that class over this these next you know several weeks, and and we'll be you know learning more and more about what this word is and how we got it and 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 why it matters. And so I encourage you, if you're not involved in that class, if you don't usually come to the Wednesday night classes, I think this could be a really valuable one for you, especially if you don't have that background in where this word came from. But. It's only truly good to understand those things. It's only truly good to know about the Bible if it sends us into the Word to know the Bible. There's this phrase that uh, these two competing sayings that I've heard. One is the great is the enemy of the good, and the other one is the good is the enemy of the great. Now, just so you don't have to think that one through a little bit, you know, the great is the enemy of the good, saying, well, knowing that there's better out there sometimes can leave us too dissatisfied with what is good because we think there should be more and it sends us pursuing something that maybe isn't the right thing to pursue. But then the flip side of that is that the good can be the enemy of the great, that sometimes we can get to a good point and, and say, well, that's good enough and not let us Move on to greatness. Not let us get on because now is good enough. And you say, those two, term, those two sayings seem to contradict each other, but I don't think they do because I think they're both true. They're both true because it, and the, the truth of both of those statements points us towards discernment. Sometimes we need to understand when we need good and when we need to get a little better and when we need to get all the way to greatness. Because see, we need to know when it's better to get to good and move on to something more important so that we can direct our time and attention to something that deserves something great. We need to know about the Bible. We need to know about Jesus. We need to know about God. Those are all good things, but we can't live there. We need to get there so that we can move on to something great, to knowing what the Word says and embedding it deeply in our hearts, to knowing God to knowing Jesus. Because see, if, if, if all of creation points us to the fact that there's something greater and gives us humility, well, Scripture points us to the fact that that something greater can be known. He has a name. Because all Scripture points not just to something, but all Scripture points us to God. Because ultimately, our trust doesn't lie in Scripture, but our trust lies in the one who backs it up, the one who's given it to us, who gives it its authority. Our faith isn't in the Bible. Our faith is in God, who's been revealed through Jesus Christ. It reveals something about Him to us. 
Now, it's not the only signpost that reveals things to us. But Scripture probably reveals more about God than we could ever comprehend in a lifetime. So we should probably pay attention. And even though God is greater than we could ever comprehend, His Word has more in it than we could ever claim to fully grasp. He's still chosen to reveal Himself to us. He wants us to know Him. Great, powerful, almighty God has looked down at us with the the humility that we talked about last week that we should have when we see how small we are compared to the universe. That God who is so great has looked down upon us and said, I want you to know me. I'm going to give you my story. I'm going to speak to you so that I can be known by you. The creator of the universe wants you to know him. So if nothing else, I'd say open your Bible. (laughs) It's probably worth opening up your Bible and just saying to God in that act, or maybe even saying it out loud, God, here I am. Reveal yourself to me more clearly. You might be surprised at what was there all along. You might be surprised at that obvious thing that you just never took notice of. You might be surprised that there was something there the whole time that was pointing you to God and you just never noticed because you just never looked. And if you've already made that a habit in your life, you've already been opening up the word to say, God, reveal yourself to me more clearly this day, then maybe you won't be surprised when it happens because it's been happening regularly. But you'll be no less enlightened by the message of the God who loves you. Message of the God who has saved you, who wants to call you his own, and wants you to know him. When you open the word, whether for the first time or for the hundred thousandth time, and you say to God, I want to know you, I know that he must be smiling. And he says, yes, my child wants to know me because I want my child to know me. There are few things so perfectly in line with the will of God than when we say to him, let me know you, God, because he has been working from the beginning to make sure that that could happen so that you could know him, so that you could be called his own. And if you want to be called his own this morning and you're not already, if you're not in the kingdom, if you're not in the family, if you haven't taken on the name of Jesus Christ in baptism, if you haven't become part of his church, we'd love to help you do that today if you're ready to take that step or if you just want to learn more about what that would actually mean. If you want to open up the word and learn more about this God that's calling you to understand more about what it means to answer that call, we would love to open the word with you because you don't have to do that one alone. Or if you're already part of this kingdom, And you just know that you haven't been listening the way you should. And you need the prayers of this family to encourage you, to support you, to help to bring you back to a place where you're ready to listen to his words and answer his call wherever it may lead you. We'd love to help you in any way that we can. If there's something we can do for you this morning, please come and let us know while we stand and while we sing.